Uh, my cat ran, and then my cat came back and looked at me and is like, what the fuck are you doing, dumbass? Okay. Just give welcome, me the Welcome, welcome, everyone. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> we were quiet for a long time. What was the final outcome of that experience, Don Hinaro? I asked. Final outcome? I mean, when and how did you finally reach Islan? Both of them broke into laughter at once. So that's the final outcome for you, Don Juan remarked. Let's put it this way then. There was no final outcome for Hinaro's journey. There will never be any final outcome. Hinaro is still on his way to Islan. Don Hinaro glanced at me with piercing eyes and then turned his head to look into the distance towards the south. I will never reach Islan. Carlos Castaneda. Carlos never worked with a real shaman. He worked with a sorcerer. Don Juan does not define himself. He was a graduate student. A strange world of shamanistic lore. Sometimes we get lost in all of the stories. Perhaps he is a man of knowledge. Claimed him as a yaki. One who knows. I want to see Carlos. I never saw him. The following weekend, the house was empty. You think I'm Carlos Castaneda? How do you know? Welcome, welcome, everyone. I am Sonora Mexico Kennedy, and this is Chaos Magic News, the only podcast on a path with a heart. Joining me today is my possibly fictional co-host, Don Wrong. How, how you doing, Don? I refuse to tell you on the grounds that I have erased my own personal history. <laughs> well, if that intro didn't let you in on the secret... And the title of the episode, I guess. This is our Carlos Castaneda special. Everyone get excited. Woo! You, I mean, you better get excited because I have been pulling for this for a hot minute. Yeah, yeah. This was actually the second idea floated for a special. In the, in the longstanding tradition, and it's longstanding now because we've done it twice, <laughs> every 10th episode we do a special where we drop the news and we drop all the modern trappings of what we're going on and we just do a special on somebody or something that we think is pretty fucking interesting and worth talking about. And if the Lovecraft special was any indication, we're, uh, we got some interesting tastes going on here and that's where <laughs> Mr. Castaneda comes in. Yeah, we certainly do. And in a great way, Carlos Castaneda's work is almost the exact opposite of Lovecraft where Lovecraft was writing fictional stories that tangentially had occult things that he himself said weren't real and that you shouldn't do stuff. And then people just took it anyway. Carlos Castaneda is notable for writing stories and books that are presented as real, even though in all likelihood they were not. And people debate their veracity and validity. And at the same time, the books are instructions on how to do magic. Specifically, shamanic practices from the Yaqui and other um, South American and Mexican indigenous groups. Okay, and we're going to go ahead and get in front of this right off the bat in the same way that we talked about Lovecraft's bigotry and everything else. Carlos Castaneda, at least when he started, was making some very bold claims about particular indigenous people, particularly the Yaqui, that are wholesale fabrications the there are no yakis that are doing the things that don juan is described as doing or believing and by his third book journey to islan 
he is openly admitting that he misinterpreted what Don Juan was telling him about his particular lineage. That while Don Juan might claim to be a Yaki, his teachings are not of the Yaki people. And you can make the argument of too little, too late. It is what it is. But it's one of those, if you're going to go into this, you need to not be the Volkswagen van hippies that show up on the reservation saying, where's Don Juan? Yeah. You need to understand that these are not representative of genuine indigenous practices and that they are this, its own separate thing. They, they are what Bertio's Gnostic voodoo is to actual voodoo and stuff like that. Right. You can have your fun, but don't go claiming that these are authentic cultural practices of, of, of a particular people. Right. And I, I don't particularly care about that sort of thing in the eyes of personal practice. But when you're writing books about it, it's probably best not to... Not to say those sorts of things or make those sorts of claims. And if you're going to go on the internet teaching fucking people about this shit, definitely don't go saying it. Or if you're trying to get your PhD. (laughs) Well, all right, we've um, we've danced around it enough, so we should probably give everyone an overview of Carlos and his work and his history, quote unquote, because that's already an issue right there. Do you, you want to take this or I have an interesting little article written by, well, someone on the payroll of a, another controversial and interesting figure in my mind. Fascinating. Well, here, I'll go ahead and give some broad strokes. Carlos Castaneda was born Christmas Day, December 25th, 1925. He is a naturalized American citizen, originally born in... Cajamarca, Purdue, is what he says, but this also goes into quite a lot of discrepancies with this man's life. But well, for the sake of argument, we will say that he was born in Peru. He immigrated to America. He lived with his family. If you believe what he writes, he lived with his grandparents and stuff like that, grew up, became a anthropology student at UCLA, and then became very notable for a series of books discussing his experiences being the apprentice to a indigenous sorcerer by the name of Don Juan Matus. This is literally like Wikipedia stuff, but it's always great to point out that the New York Times described him as a mystery wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a tortilla. Oh, wow. Did they actually say that? Yeah. They would not be allowed to say that today. Someone yeah, they, would be, they probably someone would be getting get a letter to the editor. <laughs> they probably wouldn't get away with that. But at the same time, I think that's a Taco Bell item. <laughs> and it's good with the Diabolera sauce. Let me get the Castaneda wrap. Hey, fam, I got some Castaneda wraps. Hold on, give me the beat. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, we're not going to do that. No, we're definitely not doing that. So some other things of note, Carlos Castaneda's history beyond what we just told you is pretty sketchy. In fact, his uh, birth in Peru and the birth date are only confirmed by immigration records. In his books, he claimed to have come from Brazil. Oh, yeah. And that's the other thing, too, is that as his books go on and on, he just changes things. He just says, hey, I know I said this, but this is what's actually this is what actually happened. Yeah. And not just about Don Juan, but about himself, about 
his kid, about his previous relationships, just little tidbits of his personal life. Just things change. And he almost gives it away with the joke I made earlier where Don Juan talks about erasing personal history. Yeah. No one can have power over you if they don't know who you are. Castaneda claimed that he had served in the U.S. Army in Spain, something that has pretty much been completely debunked. Castaneda attended a school somewhere in uh, Buenos Aires, according to what he says, but that also seems to be a complete lie. Castaneda apparently married someone in Peru and had a child with them, which he doesn't talk about. And then his death certificate claims that he was never married. It also claims that he was a teacher at a certain university in the California area, which also wasn't true, or a bookkeeper. I can't remember which. Uh, oh, and then also the kicker of he possibly used surrogates for all of his author photos. So might not even look like how we think he looks. Yeah, he was uh, apparently married to a Margaret Runyon and adopted her son at one point. But then that also claims that he wasn't actually married to her and it, it gets really wonky. She has a lot of interesting things to say about him later that may or may not conform to what's going on. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, he claims that that child was his child. So not like an adopted child. Like he claims that it was his kid at a certain point, which is just why? Why'd you even lie about that? And it all comes down to two possibilities. One, Carlos Castaneda is an elaborate and depending on how you look at it, incompetent con man or he was following the instructions of his dear teacher, Don Juan, who told him that if he just simply broke all his connections and no one could pin down who he was, then he, would, he was free to do anything, which uh, isn't wrong. <laughs> Sandra Burton was a Time correspondent writing an article on him that she's the one that came up with the, the uh, wonderful enig enigma wrapped in a burrito comment, so good job, Sandra. <laughs> During her investigation, she found a lot of discrepancies in his story, and when confronted with this, Castaneda apparently responded to ask me to verify my life by giving you my statistics is like using science to validate sorcery. It robs the world of its magic and makes milestones out of all of us. After this, and then an interview with Revista Veja, a Brazilian magazine, Castaneda stopped giving interviews for the next 10 years. And I believe his next, his, his next one wasn't until like the 90s, pretty, pretty soon before his death. Mm -hmm. Richard Demille, the son of the watchmaker, was one of uh, Castaneda's most virulent critics. He wrote two different books, basically trying to debunk the entire idea. And Castaneda he claimed, responded by writing five more books. <laughs> <laughs> he essentially says that the reason he was doing it is because academia at the time wasn't going to attack him because as we said earlier, Castaneda was a anthropology student writing stuff to get a PhD when he, when all this started. So in his mind, I guess he claims that it was, he was doing it because he was someone that was independent, independently wealthy. Sorry, I'm just being snarky there, but fuck you. <laughs> fuck you and your fucking watchmaking ass father. Um, but, but he claimed that he was the only person that was willing to do it because academia was not going to shoot themselves in the foot and claim that someone that they had produced and 
given funding to and all sorts of stuff like that would just be a fucking con man. But despite such criticisms, Castaneda supporters continue to maintain that his writings are either valuable works of philosophy or representations of his real life experience. It's worth noting that the first three books, which are The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaqui Way of Knowledge, A Separate Reality, and Journey to Islan, were written during his time as an anthropology student from his you know, like bachelor's degree to his doctoral thesis. So those three represent, and my understanding too is that Islan is all but a verbatim of his thesis. There is the distinct possibility they were like, oh, fuck, we gave him a doctorate and now we got to stand by it. But that would that would also mean that like they read, they saw this and then they were like, well, where's your proof? And he was like, just trust me, bro. And they said, all right, Carlos, here's your degree. So it, depending on how you look at it, there is a there's an argument to be made on either side about this idea of why no one wanted to challenge him versus maybe Castaneda had more compelling evidence presented when he was going to get his degree than his books give the appearance of. Right. And it's not like that everyone in academia completely stands against him. I don't think anyone's going to argue that a lot of his writings as they are presented are fictionalizations, but I think many people believe that there is some legitimate observation in there. Don Miguel Ruiz, a Mexican author specializing in Toltec spiritualism and neo-shamanism, has also come to Castaneda's defense and has verified that there were burros in Mexico with native teachings much like Don Juan. Yeah, there are. that's the there thing you go. is that I think by and large what you'll find is that Carlos Castaneda, who... For the record, I'm going to point out, wrote 12 books, 12, yeah, 12 books in his lifetime and uh, sold 8 million copies translated into 17 languages. There was a time when this man was exceedingly popular and his influence can still be felt today. It's almost the, the Aleister Crowley thing where there are loads of people who will tell you Aleister Crowley was a horrible person and you shouldn't listen to him. And then when you talk to them about their particular cult sensibilities, you're, you got these things from Crowley. <laughs> That's Carlos Castaneda. You'll, you will talk to people that will be like, yeah, this was all bullshit. He was a, Castaneda was a shitty con man, awful person, uh, appropriated and misrepresented indigenous teachings and blah, blah, blah. And then you talk to them about what they do, and it's like, hmm. Yeah, that Carlos sounds- Castaneda is the father of the New Age movement, essentially. I wouldn't go that far, but... Uh, I mean, people have said it. Most, a lot of people have said it. <laughs> name three people that said it. Uh, John Lennon. Who's the other person? I'm reading this from an article. Is John Lennon real? Are we sure he's not fictitious? <laughs> Anyway, um, here, I want to go into the end times of his life because that's kind of interesting. Go ahead. He retired from public life and pretty much lived in secretly. He used numerous aliases and minimized contact with his family, including his former wife and his son. Castaneda purchased an estate in 73 in California where he stayed with his fellow travelers of awareness, which were five female companions. <laughs> Like you do. Each of them changed their names in his sort of ethos of erasing personal history. 
Um, despite his self-imposed exile, Castaneda continued to be a pro- prolific writer. He wrote the last um, handful of his books from that period. In the 1990s, Carlos Castaneda founded Clear Green Inc. to promote the concept of tensual integrity or tensegrity, which is sort of a modernization of the teachings that he was promoting in his books. The Tensegrity movement contains elements of Tai Chi and martial arts to create, as promised by Castaneda, the optimal conditions for the realization of Don Juan's insights. And it's pretty much what you'd expect. It's an organization that does like workshops and all that kind of shit, and you can get certified in it. It's a money-making opportunity. I can get a Don Juan license is what you're telling me? Yeah. To this day, Mm -hmm. it's still running. Oh, really? Well, it says it's temporarily closed, but their website's still functional. Fascinating. And here's the thing on a personal level. I really, really enjoy Castaneda's work. I find it incredibly fascinating and useful and very entertaining just to read. It's funny. I laugh through all of these books. I also have only read the first four books, and uh, I will get into the reason for that later, but... uh, it's interesting to think that I, I'm like a fourth of the way through this man's entire bibliography, and I have no desire to read another book. <laughs> well, I think his books after, because what's the last book that in, that, well, what's the last one that you read? The last one I read was Tales of Power. And honestly, that was, that was the book that made me stop. But it's also the book that is his final meeting with Don Juan. So I, I felt like that was the, I thought East Lawn was going to be the, the completion and then Tales of Power is the completion, which is, that's part of it. But what happens between book one, two, three, and four is so, once you think about it and realize it, you just, you know, you, I don't have a desire to read the other, uh, the other eight books. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a noticeable difference in tone with the later books, I think. And that's what I was going to get at too, especially with the tensegrity or however you say it, ten, tense the gritty. When yeah, you tense ten, the gritty. When you hit tense the gritty. The, yeah, when you tense up and do the and hit the gritty. And, and I don't want to be like, oh man, I only like Carlos Castaneda's early stuff, but it is very <laughs> much like there's there seems to be a strange transformation that happens, and it might be the con man thing of making your practices more marketable or maybe I just don't like when people start making cults. <laughs> well, getting five women to come hang out with you and change their names in a, uh, in a compound essentially while you set up a uh, organization to certify people in something you made up, you know, just saying, <laughs> um, you're describing, you're describing <laughs> a lot of things. Okay. It's like, <laughs> You, you're completely certified, right. <laughs> certified in something you made up. Well, you just gave him an anthropology degree. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, like the last couple books are like the art of dreaming, magical passes, the active side of infinity. You know, they're a lot less anthropological in content. If you catch my drift. <laughs> At any rate, in uh, '93, Castaneda married. For the third time to one of the women who changed their name. And once again, married for the third time, but his death Except certificate maybe not. Said, <laughs> his death certificate says he was never married. It's like, mm, what's going on? Margaret Runyon, his second or first wife, depending. Or possibly not his wife. <laughs> or possibly not his wife, wrote a book called A Magical Journey with Carlos Castaneda, and he sued her. 
Um, the lawsuit got dropped because he died. He said, listen here, lady. I said erase personal history. <laughs> and in 1998, Carlos Castaneda died. He was cremated shortly after his death. And there were, once again, weird things about his death certificate. And we didn't actually know about it until several weeks after it had happened. That's exactly what they want you to think. <laughs> you know, it's notable that, uh, spoiler alert, Don Juan dies not long after the final meeting. And it can even be argued that he dies at the final meeting with, uh, that's told in Tales of Power, right? But no one ever see. you know, Don Juan does not have a funeral. Castaneda just says, I never saw him again. Carlos Castaneda dies. He's cremated very unceremoniously. Nobody says anything. You know, following in the footsteps. Well, some people had some things to say. CJ Castaneda, the adopted son who might be his real son, a self-proclaimed powerful brujo, challenged his father's will, which was signed four days before his death. The will stated that Castaneda's assets, valued at $1 million at the time of his death, were endowed to Eagle's Trust, which was established at the same time that the will was written. There were bitter exchanges during the court hearing. Yo, 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 he gave, that to that, an, he gave that to an eagle? <laughs> there were bitter exchanges during the court hearing, with CJ stating those people latched onto him, stuck their claws in him, and rode him for all he was worth. <laughs> He was furthered mentioned, I don't believe the will has my father's signature, and I don't believe he was competent to sign it three days before he died. So, on an interesting note, you know, while we're giving you the cult makings of Carlos Castaneda, some people claim that it might have been the other way around, which, just saying, it might account for um, the noticeable drop-off in quality of his books, you know, hey, oh, Carlos, we love you. We just, we need to bring some more money in. You know, there's five of us now. Or hell, I mean, he might not have even been writing them. We hey, don't Carli know what he looked like, so. Carlito, slap your signature on this manuscript. We're going to send it off to the presses. <laughs> it's called the active side of Xfinity or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> you ready for the last thing? Sure. Carol Tiggs was Carlos Castaneda's colleague and a fellow student of Don Juan. After Castaneda's death, she continued to hold workshops around the world. She currently is a consultant for Clear Green Inc., the organization set up for Tensegrity. Uh, three of the other ones who uh, changed their names, and I'm not going to give these names just because they're, we got enough names here going on already. And, you know, it's the weird game of trying to figure out, is that the name they changed it to? Is that their name here? Because I, I, I can't really tell. It's fucking hard to figure all this out. But... Not long after Castaneda's passing in April 1998, the three of, of them that aren't the one that I just mentioned previously informed their friends and family that they were leaving on a long journey. Several weeks later, one of their cars, a red Ford Escort, was found abandoned in Death Valley. A pair of hikers found a skeleton in Death Valley in 2006, and DNA confirmed that it was, in fact, Blue Scout, a.k.a. Patricia Parton. The police ruled the cause of death unknown. There are allegations that Castaneda spoke of suicide and part of his practices being choosing a noble end to one's life. Something interesting, given that the man spent his later years dying of some type of cancer. But, mm, you know, you say that, but 
if he was cremated very quickly afterwards. Yeah, we have no clue. He might have he might have taken the express lane out. He might have chosen his noble end. Or of course, this could have been some people that wanted to go on a spirit quest and weren't prepared for it and died. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, they're probably not the first people that Carlos Castaneda unintentionally sent on a death <laughs> on a suicide <laughs> mission out in the desert. Don Juan made it look so easy in the books. <laughs> I just have to do my power walk. Oh, what is, what's that? Yeah. And then well, you get immediately, like, you get <laughs> your face bitten off by a, an eagle-coyote combo. Better luck next life. So... So what, we, what we've heard is that Carlos Castaneda was possibly born. Yeah. Maybe got married. Possibly died. Somebody wrote some books that have his name attached to them. And then people claim to have been living with him and then got rid of his body. And then they died. And a lot of money got generated and people fought over it. And then they gave it to an eagle. Seems to be the long and short of it. So here's the thing. Everyone always makes the argument of, oh, is Don Juan a real person? Maybe we should be asking ourselves, is Carlos Castaneda a real person? (laughs) Or is at least Carlos Castaneda the Carlos Castaneda that we know? Yeah, yeah. A man who uh, not only is his work arguably different levels of fabricated and fictional, but the man himself is just as fabricated and fictional. Well, you know, I, I got to go back to that quote that he gave uh, old Burton. This was clearly a man that wasn't concerned with trying to give you the objective facts and statistical analysis of who he was as a person. So I don't expect that we would get any of that in his writing. If the ideas of erasing your personal history are whether they're from Don Juan or from him. He clearly seemed to be taking it seriously. Ironically in the book, he's like, there's no, I couldn't possibly do that. Don Juan, the way you live and the way I live are entirely just, they're just too different. I can't do that. Hmm. Mm. Well, yeah, the, the only other thing I will point out in relation to Don Juan before we get to the, actual contents of the books themselves and discussing about, you know, Don Juan and the legitimacy of any of these practices. There's a long-standing history in various occult sciences and practices of teachers that probably don't exist, maybe didn't exist or have a questionable existence. I mean, when you're wearing Rosicrucian colored glasses. It's very easy to overlook these sort of things. <laughs> but that's a that's that's a good one, right? Yeah, that's a really good one. <laughs> Whether it's uh, the secret chiefs of the Golden Dawn or who is the guy that claimed to have gotten initiation in an underground cavern into the Egyptian mysteries, <laughs> or um closer to home, we got. Good old Aleister Crowley claiming that he got the 33rd degree of Freemasonry from some random guy in Mexico that we don't really have any fucking records of. Yeah, he's the guy who taught Don Juan. Yeah. Ironically, he was Don Jesus de Medina. I mean, we got a long standing history of being like, yeah, this guy taught me. Hell, fucking St. Jerome and shit like that. Jesus Christ. All sorts of people. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Krishna. hell, um, Krishna, or you know, the Tibetan, um, t- the Tibetan Terma tradition, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the hidden teachings, like, oh yeah, this is something that Padma Sambhava totally actually said, and we just found it somewhere in a cave. And then it's always like, who'd he learn it from? Oh, a giant scorpion. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A lady with a lion face that was naked (laughs) as hell. These all sound a little little screwy. A little screwy. You gonna question the terma? (laughs) That's wrong view, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I guess we should probably get into the book since we've given you the overview of what's going on. You're probably wondering, what the hell could this guy have possibly said that made these people so mad? (laughs) Well, it all begins at a bus station. Like all great stories. Don Juan Matus was pointed out to Carlos Castaneda by another friend who is described as a pot hunter turned anthropologist at a certain point who is not named except in the later books his name is bill but they don't give a last name so it's like who cares this guy could be just as fake as everyone else castaneda is doing his his field work of trying to find informants and people that he can talk to he's very interested in peyote and he wants to know about the practices involved, the usage of, I think he probably wants to score. And this guy goes, well, there's crazy old Don Juan over there. <laughs> the people around seem to think he's some kind of like, you know, he's, he's some kind of medicine man, sorcerer guy. But like, you know, I, I, it's like, I don't really know him like that. I mean, I could introduce you, but you go on. So he introduces him and he's, and Carlos Castaneda basically says, hey, I, I heard you know a lot about plants. I'm trying to do work on peyote. Do you, you know, maybe we can help each other out. I'll pay you or this, that, and the other. And Don Juan just sees right through him and is like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I might be able to tell you something, I guess. Uh, maybe you come visit me and maybe I'll tell you. And he basically strings Carlos along for a long time. I think in the, in the book it describes he's, it, he, he's meeting with him for over a year doing like random bullshit where he's like, you know, just he's bringing him stuff and just talking about the area that he lives. He takes him hunting out in the, out in the desert and shit like that. And then finally he actually starts explaining like, yeah, I'm, I'm from a, a lineage of sorcerers. And I knew when we first met, you were going to be my apprentice. It's just I had to I I have to to be teaching you these things that you're not even aware that I'm teaching you. <laughs> at, at the very least, in the first book, it's all centered around Castaneda's quest for peyote. So after a year of being like buddy buddy with him, asking him about plants, he goes like, Hey, listen, you're right. I am a sorcerer. I do know about peyote. I'm gonna take you and we're gonna go do this peyote ritual with some other people, and you're gonna just shut up and you know, you can take your notes, whatever. And he meets during the peyote trip. He meets a, a manifestation of mescalito. And Don Juan takes this as a very good sign where he's like, yeah, that's hot. I, I knew it. You're definitely going to be my apprentice. And he starts instructing him on the attainment of an ally, which is described as a spirit entity that is connected to a particular type 
of psychotropic plant where there's mescalito who's associated with peyote. There is something called the little smoke, which comes from a, a, an herbal mix of psychotropic mushrooms and a couple other things. And then there's the, an ally that is associated with the datura plant. And at first it, it's sort of implied that the ally is the substance. It's the idea that like you're, it is a plant ally. And then later it's like, no, the, the plant is something that puts you in contact with the spirit and the spirit itself is the ally, blah, blah, blah. And Carlos Castaneda is like the worst apprentice ever. Cause it's like the entire book is just like, uh, and then I accidentally fell in the water and Don Juan was like, you stupid idiot. Now the, 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 the river spirit is going to fucking follow you and we're going to have to get him to do some shit. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, and then I did Detura and apparently I disappeared for two days and Don Juan found me in a ditch and he just looked at me and went. <laughs> and then, um, he made me try the little smoke and. I turned into just a head and then he threw my head like a basketball into a trash can. And he was like, you the worst, you the worst apprentice ever. It's just like one fuck up after another. And this is why I say that, like, I find the books funny because it's like every step of the way, Carlos is like, this is crazy. Magic can't possibly be real. And then Don Juan is like, shut up and take these drugs and backhands him and calls him an idiot and like laughs at him. It's like, ah, Carlos, you're so stupid because you're not a, you're not a sorcerer yet. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm going to go on. Like, I don't want to give the entire chronology. Do you, uh, you have anything no. to add? No, I was just fascinated by the whole of what, what's really going on here. It's like, I think what I want to talk about more than anything is like, what the specific sort of things that are being brought up here. Cause a lot of it is more philosophical, spiritual than it is like specific practices. Right. Well, yes and no, because what's very notable is that while he is dispensing, uh, like psychonaut trip reports and supposed to be doing magic and doing things like uh, telling him about how to look at his hands while he's dreaming and all of that stuff. He's also espousing the ideals of being a warrior. And there's this quote that always sticks with me where it, Don Juan says something to the effect of like, the problem is you think you and I are equals and we're not. I'm a warrior. And it's like, that's really like, that's like, man, that is a takedown. And it's also like, in a way, it's really cringe and kind of hokey because it sounds like some shit that some like alpha male social media influencer will say, but maybe from the lips of a, a fictional medicine man, it sounds a little more palatable. But, <laughs> but then he, the, the quote, he says something like, I'm a warrior. And he's like, you see, you have all of these problems and you complain about them and they ruin your life. I have problems and I just solve them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, shit, okay, yeah. You know, even at the time in the 60s, that's a really, that's a very different idea, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's really separated from the sort of liberalism and egalitarianism that was really coming into vogue with the younger people there. It's really wild to think that there's somebody who's just like, well, no, we're not equal. We're not equal at all. I'm a fucking warrior. You're just a dude with a notebook. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's basically like 
he tells him he tells him things. He's like the the you know what your problem is is that you have personal history. People, you know, your family knows who you are, so they have expectations of how you're going to act. So when you don't, it causes problems. Your friends know who you are, so they make expectations of you. If you just get rid of that, then they can't do that to you. No one can do that to you. You know what your problem is, is that you act like you have time. You think you have time and you don't. Your death is out there waiting. Your death is always at your left shoulder. There's these philosophical and uh, ethical, maybe. There is, Don Juan is just as concerned with how you conduct yourself in the world as he is the, the spooky woo-woo stuff. Not only is he trying to teach Carlos how to do things with spirits and do things in your dreams and make magic, quote-unquote, happen, he's concerned with the fact that Carlos is miserable all the time and that the world makes him angry and frustrated and sad and that he's constantly trying to be this shitty little person And he looks right through him and goes, Carlos, you're an asshole. And like, if you just listen to me, you wouldn't have all these problems. And it really comes down to the very simple acts of conducting yourself as a warrior. And I say simple as in like, you know, he he can outline it in very simple terms. They're just incredibly hard if you're clinging to the world that most of us live in. I think part of why Castaneda resonated so much with the culture at the time was because that was a lot of the ideal of what these people were trying to aim for. Granted, maybe not in such a radical way. There was a lot of societal expectation from a lot of people. And that was almost the idea that was, they were trying to break forth from all the expectations of your parents and society and being a good person and being a good, whatever, according to whatever institutionalized values were prevalent at the time, which you know, nothing new. We're still trying to do that sort of thing today. But at the time, it was a lot more of a, I don't know what the word we'd use, patriarchal and familial expectation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can go with that, I suppose. I don't know. I, I honestly, and it's probably because I have contemporary eyes on old works, but I think that what Don Juan paints... And I, I, I noticed that I'm, I, I keep saying Don Juan as if Don Juan is actually a, a person and not a conception of Carlos Castaneda's own ideas. But, you know, I suppose there is the possibility that there is a Don Juan out there. So at the very least, Don Juan, as he is presented in the book, his ideas are just as relevant now as they were when they were written, maybe possibly more, in that we have a world that is exceedingly easy for your life to be documented, put on display for everyone. Everyone has access to you, and that's another thing he talks about, is making yourself unavailable to the world, where if you simply allow everyone to access you at any given moment, it drains you of your power. It drains you of your, your strength because you, have all, you are always able to be pro- poked and prodded at. 
there's the notion of everyone has the expectations of how you're going to behave. And not just the expectations of like, oh, well, we want you to do this. But the idea is when someone thinks they know you, they will treat you a certain way. They will, they will take certain things about you as a person for granted. And that, in a way, makes it harder to break from your own routines. Exceedingly, in a world that... <sighs> and this is going to sound like some okay boomer or whatever the fuck in a world where people are more and more willing to abdicate their responsibility for their life, right? Everything is the fault of forces that are so far beyond their control. What Castaneda says, or what Don Juan says through Castaneda is the same thing that I talked about in that article I wrote where the magician's greatest strength is also its greatest weakness in that the magician takes a radical sense of personal responsibility for the world that they inhabit. I think you hit it on the head right there. I was going to talk about how we live increasingly in a world where people not only allow themselves to be accessed, they have more accessibility to each other from the internet, from social media. And not only do they have more access to each other, but corporate interests have more access to them. You're completely right about the idea of expectations and, in a sense, the modeling of the individual allowing you to get stuck more and more in your pre-programmed behaviors. Hell, that's why data mining and advertisement through it is so important because if they can keep showing you the things that they know you'll spend money on already or they'll catch your attention, it makes it that much easier to keep doing it because you have something actively sucking your energy away, as it were, yeah. and getting you to watch terrible YouTube and getting you to spend $40 on something on Amazon or whatever. I think if Castaneda was alive right now, he would be horrified at the world that we inhabited. Okay, so hypothetical, right? You're going away for three days into a wilderness, right? You're going to go out to the woods. You're going to go out to the desert. You're going to go piss off a river spirit. I don't know. If this was even 20 years ago, there's a very real possibility that you were going to go out and no one was going to fucking hear from you. It would basically be like, hey, if you haven't heard from me about this, you know, this day at this time, assume the worst and come find me. Right. Uh, but nowadays, man, it'd be like, now, if you're really, really going far out, there's the idea of like, oh, I probably won't have cell service, but your girlfriend, your mom, whatever, your, you know, your, uh, your brother, you, you, whoever, somebody is going to have this expectation that you're going to maintain contact with them, like at, from the very least until like 15 minutes before you get to the area where your service is going to run out, you're, you're expected to be like, Hey, I made it safe. Uh, I'm about to lose cell service. So, you know, no, no, 16 emojis. I, I'm well, really even worse I'm than really, that. You know, yeah. you know what the expectation for everyone is, is that you're going to like, check it out. I'm out here doing my spiritual fucking, uh, you quest. better take, you better and take here's photos. My fucking, yeah. You better here's do my, it for I'm the putting, gram. Yeah, exactly. Posting pictures on Twitter, being like, check out yeah. this beautiful altar that I made out of the woods. And it's interesting because as the books go on, particularly once you get to Journey to Islan, Don Juan really lays out that the practice of being a warrior, the practice of being a sorcerer, the practice of being a man of knowledge, whatever you want to call it, right, are these, these uh, practices of how to conduct yourself in the world. And there is a, there is 
not even a metaphorical, it is very much laid out that your, your means of accruing power are reliant on the way you conduct yourself. And that goes, that goes entirely hand in hand with nearly every mystical tradition, certainly the Western tradition, and certainly like the Crowley Thalema type stuff where it's like, yeah, you're never going to do, you're never going to be able to consistently do magic well if you're an emotional mental wreck all the time. If you're that, if your buttons are pushed easy, if you don't have the self-discipline, if you don't have a reservoir of will to call upon, if you do not have the internal whatever you want to call it, you're not going to do magic well. Your power is going to drain from you at every instant. You're going to be a ship with holes in the bottom. Right, and even further into chaos magic, Peter Carroll is laying out very similar things to you. He's giving you all these, all this tech, all these things you can do to learn how to better control yourself and control the world about you and giving you, you know, basically the, the layout of like, these are the things you're going to do. You know, how many people actually have worked all the way through Libra K and how many people have gone through and done all the exercises in uh, Libra Null and Psychonaut? Uh, the, it's the Prometheus Rising thing, right? Yeah, Robert yeah. Anton Wilson talked about how he could just talk to people and he'd know if they had done none, if they had only read the book, if they had done some of the exercises or if they had done everything. <laughs> He's like, you can just talk to them. You'll know because it's so different between actually doing the work versus just reading about it. <laughs> yeah, I think the intro he wrote to Chris Hyatt's Undoing Yourself talks about people asking him about true will and being like, there's only one explanation for why these people are asking me these questions. It's because they have never done anything to actually bring themselves into testing or understanding the concept. Yeah. <laughs> And I think, I think casting is a me, lot of the same. They, I'm sorry that I remember the quote of Hyatt where it's like, they ask me things like, what is the name of their angel? And my response is usually to pass gas or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of it's the same with Castaneda. I think the real problem with Castaneda is simply that he presented all of these things to people that thought that they were anthropological takes on indigenous traditions. Yeah, but he got to get that degree, fam. Right. Well, I, and that's the thing. I think it, it proves a sort of point among people that are interested in Castaneda's work. Because there's three camps, really, I think. There's the people that want to claim that what Carlos Castaneda wrote is real and it is based on actual indigenous teachings of some kind, whether they be indigenous people's individual traditions or greater cultural traditions. Then there, there's the people like Richard Mill that want to claim that everything that Don Juan ever said was a stolen quote from everyone from Wittgenstein to C.S. Lewis. Um, in fact, I, I want to give this example because I think it's kind of funny. In one example, DeMille first quotes a passage by a mystic Yogi Rama Chakara. The human aura is seen by the psychic observer as a luminous cloud egg-shaped streaked by fine lines like stiff bristles standing out in all directions. In a separate reality, a man looks like a human egg of circulating fibers and his arms and legs are like luminous bristles bursting out in all directions. 
Hmm. For, all I'm getting at here is that if Mill thinks that that is like proof of plagiarism, then he needs to read more fucking esoteric text because I can find you like 75 people that have used those kind of phrasings. Yeah. And they yeah, might have been I mean, stealing from each other, but you know, yeah. hey, there's a distinct reality that maybe they all experience something similar because maybe there's something similar to experience. Ooh. <laughs> but the other camp out of the three of them are people that are not concerned about whether or not anything Carlos Castaneda said is objectively true, anthropologically correct or otherwise. There are people that see the value in the text itself. Yeah, and I think most chaos people would be in that camp. It is, in the grand scheme of things, entirely immaterial whether or not Don Juan Matus is a real person. It just doesn't really matter because I, I'm not going to talk to him. I'm never going to get to talk. He's, you know, if, even, if he is, even if he is real, he's been dead for decades. There's nothing to be gained from this this hunt of, oh, is he telling the truth or not? If what you're concerned about is practical application of techniques for magical purposes, because if that's what you're interested in, then just read the books, right? Read the books, take what you learn, apply it. If we do want to talk about criticisms of Castaneda, not as a person, but in the writings, I can tell you right now that there is a distinct departure as the books go on, where Don Juan, a Yaki way of knowledge and a separate reality are very tightly knit. These are psychotropics. These are herbal remedies. These are exceedingly in, in their, in their aesthetics, at least trying to come across as authentic practices of indigenous peoples because of their use of psychotropics and the particular interpretations of like spiritual phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. Then you get to Journey to Islan, which while being my favorite book, it, it's, you know, it, absolutely my favorite book. So it's near and dear to my heart. I think in the last episode, I, I talked about it as well. This book recontextualizes the first two books because what Castaneda essentially claims is that, well, looking through my notes and what I've experienced because the final book is about him attaining membership as he describes it. This is him going, this is his apprenticeship ending and him completing the journey of what Don Juan was trying to teach him essentially. But what he realizes is that while he believed that the important part of Don Juan's teachings were the use of psychotropics for the pur purposes of sorcery, Don Juan basically shows that during that year where he was leading him around and sort of stringing him along, he was actually trying to teach him important things. <laughs> and it deals with the art of seeing and stopping the world where it goes into the, the idea that the world as we understand it is created by a description, a, a linguistic matrix or whatever you want to call it, that the world is, we are indoctrinated into understanding the world in a certain way from birth, and that the world is only held up by a sort of tacit agreement amongst people that this is how the world is, and that by stopping the world, 
which is to say you stop the constant interpretation of phenomena in the way that is going along with the consensus reality that you were indoctrinated into, then you're able to enter a new description, the, the, the magical description, the sorcerer's description. And in that way, it's almost like the John Lilly thing where it's like there's a thousand doors to get out. And once you get out, you know, it doesn't matter what door you went through, you're out. And then that becomes the explanation for why so many different methods get used on Carlos Castaneda throughout it, where it's like, all right, try this drug. And, oh, you have to confront the guardian on the threshold here. Or, oh, no, you need to learn to turn into a, a crow and you need to do this. And it's like, because the idea is that Don Juan was like, no, I was just trying to break your world. I was just trying to show you how to stop the world because once you realize that, then you can become the sorcerer because you realize that reality is held up by power, essentially. Your ability to render the world intelligible via these sorts of descriptions are the important part. But the problem is you upended your last two books that were talking about how important drugs were to the whole thing. <laughs> you know, it's very much like... And honestly, given the timeline, it has this strange thing of like, oh man, this is when like the the government crackdown of psychedelics was really starting to come into fruition. You know, like the Leary trials were going on and stuff like that. People weren't able to just get their hands on drugs. Yeah. I better give them something else. Uh, <laughs> and, and the same way that yoga and magic blossomed it as psychedelics got cracked down on because it's like, oh, well, we got to do the stuff that they can't make illegal. Oh, don't say that. They'll make magic illegal one day. Well, they, they've done that before, but we'll, we'll talk about that next episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the, the other problem is that when Tales of Power happens, which is the last meeting with Don Juan, it's yet again another sort of, it's not quite an upending of everything, but it's almost this thing of like every step of the way, every time Carlos gets a handle on something, Don Juan pulls the rug out from under him again, where it's like, okay, now that you've got this, I can explain to you that this isn't actually the thing. Here's the real understanding that you needed to get <laughs> where magic yeah. becomes reliant on the, it's the Nawal, which is a, uh, that's a, a real appropriation of an indigenous term for what it doesn't actually mean, but it's the, the concept of, there is the reality that we have linguistic structures to understand, and then there is the transcendental other that is, uh, by being the thing that cannot be described, is the source of non-ordinary reality in all of its forms, whether it's magic or uh, the psychotropic experience, and all these sorts of things. All of the teachings of Don Juan are, are meant for that confrontation with the Nawal, but it can give the appearance of somebody who needed to upend what they were trying to tell you in the last two books and then the last three books. Yeah. <laughs> Which might give the appearance of someone who isn't actually a hundred percent sure what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> um, someone in the discord actually brought this up. So I wanted to talk about it a little bit. I'm not normally big on psychologizing people to come up with explanations for what they're doing. 
I don't think that it's always particularly helpful, and I don't think I'm particularly qualified to it. I don't think anyone's qualified to look at someone's writings and decide things about them, even if you have their personal history. But I I would be lying to myself if I didn't want to throw out some ideas. Is it possible that the teachings of Don Juan are almost a exercise in Castaneda himself trying to find some hidden esoteric answer to his own life's woes. Like you said, he's miserable through most of the Don Juan books. He had dropped out of school apparently before he started writing the book because he didn't have any money. Oh, that's what someone says. Again, we don't have any real proof of any of this. Just like we're going to go into uh, some, I know you're, you're sitting there thinking like, wow, we already gave all the accusations, but I want to go through a handful of the other ones because they're a, uh, a little more brutal and they point towards something else that I'm going to bring up in a second. But is it possible that the teachings of Don Juan could be that the sort of thing that somebody in his position would be trying to grasp the, the little voice in your head telling you like, you know, your problem is that, you know, you're a fucking baby and you just bitch about all your problems all the time. And (laughs) if you were a, if you were a warrior, you'd be able to get beyond them. And then oh, once boy. he has success, what's he do with it? He all, he he knows that because we've all been there. We've all succeeded and we've all done the great thing. We're like, wow, I'm great. And then we're still miserable. We still have problems. So what do you do? You keep coming up with new lessons to be found and leaning more towards uh, the sinister side of Castaneda here. Sounds an awful lot like uh, some practices that cults do. There's a certain one that we can represent with a dollar sign and a zero and a C that has some similar methods where you get brought up to the next level. And then they go like, Oh no, here are the real secret teachings. You don't know about this stuff yet. Mm -hmm. And every time, every time you think you've got the answer, the, the rug gets pulled out from under you. I suppose on the, the positive end, there's also the idea of, uh, a sort of Gurdjieff or maybe a Zen master sort of thing where it's like, as somebody gets concepts, you have to keep, as they, they build new foundations, you kick the foundation out from under them because it's the only way they're going to learn. But, oh, well, yeah, I, I agree entirely. And the thing is, I don't necessarily disagree with the sort of progression that Castaneda has in the first four books as someone that went through some of those sorts of experiences myself where it's like, whoa, I took some things that opened my mind. And then it's like, you keep doing it. And it's like, well, it's not really doing anything now. Like, there must be something else to this. And you realize later that it's like, well, it had nothing to do with those. It had nothing to do with the, the experiences that I had then. It had to do with getting myself out of the normal experiences I had and finding a greater purpose behind them. Yeah, well, and, and it's one of those things too where it's like, I, I'm not saying oh, this is bullshit because book three and four don't have the same pro-mushroom peyote detura uh, stance that the first two do. It's just more of a, it it is an acknowledgement that there is a shift in those two. And like I said, I haven't read past those books, so I just don't know how far it goes. There is a distinct thing with... uh, the first two being like, like you'll read the first two and you'll be like, shit, I gotta go. I gotta go call my guy. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta call the plug and, and, uh, go have a trip somewhere or something like that. And then you'll read the next two and be like, Oh no, I could have been, (laughs) 
I could have been just practicing my perception this whole time. I think on another level, right? They do logically make sense to a certain idea of if you went in wanting to learn about the use of psychotropic plants, that's going to be the thing that you write about. And it's only in hindsight you realize like, oh no, that man, when I thought Don Juan was talking stupid bullshit about the the wind and uh, something about power, uh, I was just waiting to ask him about peyote again. But no, he was actually trying to teach me something. <laughs> so with that, we're going to get into the the more brutal accusations of Castaneda as a person. This is from an article where actually I pulled out the Richard Mill talking about him stealing quotes. This is from Salon. It's called The Dark Legacy of Carlos Castaneda. Hmm. So aside from the various criticisms there that we've already leveled. Castaneda punched babies in the face. He did the he he put a he put a grandma in the cobra clutch in a Walmart. <laughs> In keeping with the philosophy of erasing personal history, all the members of his compound changed their names. We've already said that. Did we say that? Yeah, we mentioned that everyone changed their all That's, the women changed That sounds their names. like personal history, talking about things we did. <laughs> the witches, as they were apparently called, along with Castaneda, maintained a tight veil of secrecy. They used numerous aliases and didn't allow themselves to be photographed. Followers were constantly changing backstories. Only after Castaneda's death did the real facts about their lives begin to emerge. In the early 90s, Richard Jennings, a Columbia Law graduate, was living in Los Angeles. He was the executive director of Hollywood Supports, a nonprofit or group organized to fight discrimination against people with HIV. After reading an article in Details magazine by Bruce Wagner about a meeting with Castaneda, he became intrigued. By looking on the internet, he found his way into one of the semi-secret workshops being held around Los Angeles. He was soon invited to participate in Castaneda Sunday sessions, exclusive classes for select followers, where Jennings kept copious notes. From 1995 to 1998, he was deeply involved in the group, sometimes advising on legal matters. After Castaneda's death, he started a website, Sustained Action, which he compiled meticulously researched chronologies dating from 1947 to 1999 on the lives of Patricia Parton and the witches. P Patricia being the one that was found as a skeleton in 2006. Ooh. For the record, it's presumed that the other two are dead? Uh, yes, at the moment. Okay, all right. Gabby Guter, an author and former travel agent, had been a workshop attendee who hoped to join the inner circle. In 1996, she realized she was being shut out. In an effort to find out the truth about the guru who rejected her, she, along with her husband, began shadowing Castaneda. In her book, Filming Castaneda, she recounts how, from a parked car near his compound, they secretly videotaped the group's comings and goings. Were it not for Guter, there'd be no post-73 photographic record of Castaneda. They also went through his trash, discovering a treasure trove of documents, including marriage certificates, letters, and credit card receipts, which would later provide clues to the group's history and its behavior during Castaneda's final days. During the late 70s and 80s, Jennings believed the group probably numbered no more than two dozen. At the time, a pivotal event was the defection of Carol Tiggs, who was, according to Wallace, always the most ambivalent witch. Soon after joining, she tried to break away. She attended California Acupuncture College, married a fellow student, and lived in Pacific facilities. 
Eventually, Wallace says Castaneda lured her back. Castaneda had a different version. In his 1981 bestseller, The Eagle's Gift, he described how Tiggs vanished into the second attention, one of his terms for infinity. Eventually, she reappeared through a space-time portal in New Mexico. She then made her way to L.A., where they were joyously reunited when he found her on Santa Monica Boulevard. In homage to her 10 years in another dimension, she was now known as the Nahal Woman. Wallace believes this was an incentive to get Tiggs to rejoin. According to Wallace and Jennings, one of the witches' tasks was to recruit new members. Melissa Ward, a Los Angeles area caterer, was involved in the group from 93 to 94. Frequently, they recruited at lectures. Among the goals, she was said, was to find women with a combination of brains and beauty and vulnerability. Initiation in the inner family often involves sleeping with Castaneda, who the witches claimed in public appearances was celibate. Mm. In The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Wallace provides a detailed picture of her own seduction. Because of her father's relationship with Castaneda, her case was unusual. Over the years, he'd stop by the Wallace home. When Irving died in 1990, Amy was living in Berkeley, California. Soon after, Castaneda called her and told her that her father had appeared to him in a dream and said he was trapped in Wallace's house and needed Amy and Carlos to free him. Wallace, suitably skeptical, came down to L.A. and the seduction began in earnest. She recounts how she soon found herself in bed with Castaneda. He told her he hadn't had sex for 20 years. When Wallace later worried she might have gotten pregnant, they used no protection. Castaneda leapt from the bed shouting, me make you pregnant? Impossible. The Nawal sperm isn't human. Don't let any of the Nawal sperm out, Nina. It will burn away your humanness. He didn't mention the vasectomy he had had years before. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, so the, so the account is that he said he had magic sperm that could not get her pregnant because it wasn't of this world or whatever. And I right? think he was yeah. saying that he didn't come. <laughs> I think he was saying that like, I can't come and you don't worry about it. Yeah, I can't fine, let the you. sperm out. It'll burn you. <laughs> and then he didn't mention that he had already, it's like the easier thing would have been to say, no, I got a vasectomy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. This of course is all from someone's book claiming that this happened. Yeah, Which, and that's, I guess... It'd be and, really and, easy to make a claim about anything that Castaneda did. Because well, you saw what be, the level of, like, of earnestness we had. There was someone that got rejected by him, so someone that clearly had a bone to pick with him going through his trash and shit. Well, and not to be a shit, too, but it's that thing of, like, we, we often... Oh, this is going to sound really bad, I guess, but it's just... It, 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 it's something to think about. We're all more willing to listen to the idea that like somebody might have been an awful person than the idea of like the person saying this has a motivation to lie about it because they want to sell muckraking, you know? Well, yeah. And I mean, and this isn't like there's just like this isn't like an abusive thing. This is someone being a skeezy magic person convincing you to have sex with them, I guess. Like, you know, it's. It's skeezy. It's dishonest, but it's a far cry from like he used his psychic mind powers to make me have sex with him. I guess it's just that thing of like, there's just as much evidence that Carlos said or did any of these things as there is of a Nawal woman going through a time portal. There's as much evidence as of this as Don Juan. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, there's just so much, like, there's so many stories going here and none of them are able to be corroborated. I guess most people are used to the pattern of 
shitty spiritual con man doing shitty spiritual con man things. But, and I'm not saying he didn't. I mean, he, he was living on a compound with five women. I hope he was fucking some of them, you know? And I guess maybe even there's this notion of like, oh, he had multiple sexual partners living on a compound with him. Obviously, this is like abuse and manipulation rather than like, you know, uh, a non-conventional sexual orientation. But either way, it's just that problem of you could make whatever crazy fucking claim you want about him because he wasn't in a position. He wasn't going to come out of exile to defend himself and he wasn't going to do much to offer an alternative. Yeah. But the, uh, at the same time, him being like, nah, I can't, I can't come <laughs> when he had a vasectomy is just like, do you think that was part of the con or, uh, <laughs> uh like, I'm going to just, I'm going to just tell her that like, I can't bust a nut because it'll be like ghost acid. <laughs> I don't know. It'll eat there's away some, my balls. There's some more culty, brutal stuff claiming here, though. Gone. Castaneda told her that they were energetically married. One afternoon, he took her to the sorcerer's compound. As they were leaving, Wallace looked at a street sign so she could remember the location. Castaneda furiously berated her. A warrior wouldn't have looked. He ordered her to return to Berkeley. She did. When she called, he refused to speak to her. The witches, however, did, instructing Wallace on the sorceric... Sorceric? I've never read that word before. Sorceric steps necessary to return. She had to let go of her attachments. She got rid of her cats. That didn't cut it. Castaneda, she wrote, got on the phone and called her an egotistical spoiled Jew. He ordered her to get a job at McDonald's. Jesus age Christ. Okay. I'm now, just saying like, what? <laughs> like, what does that mm. even mean though? Like, I mean, I, I understand the egotistical part, but like, uh, anti it's, it's just anti-Semitism. Yeah. It, okay, it just seems I mean, to be like, anti-Semitic. But what's the get a job at McDonald's part? Is that like a humble yourself? It, like, yeah, like humble yourself and then purify yourselves in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. I don't know. I just don't get it. Right. But here, uh, later on, we, we get some claims that Castaneda would apparently try to bring these women into emotional and financial dependence. He got a woman named Peggy to quit her job. And then get a job at Burger King, right? She was told she would be given the cast to get a phoneless apartment where she would wait to hear from Castaneda or the witches. And she fled before this happened. So one of them needs to get a job. Another one needs to quit their job. Okay. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is consistent. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know, man, like it's like, I don't want to disbelieve people when they make claims about like weird abusive behavior, but it's also exceedingly odd. Also, the idea of like, oh, this bitch ain't taking it seriously, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna not talk to her. You girls tell her what she needs to do, and then only when she doesn't get it right, it's like I'm gonna yell at her one more time and tell her to get a job at Mickey D's. It's like it doesn't, that doesn't seem like you're luring in. That seems like you're trying to get this. Like you, <laughs> I don't know, but I don't understand the 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 love bombing abuse types of where it's like, all right, I'm gonna be really mean to you. And then I'm going to come. I don't know. I guess maybe that's the problem. He's not being nice to her either. It's like, where do you lure? Where's the lure here? Is it just like, hey, I'm the Nawal. So you, you better come in here and do what I'm telling you. I don't know. And, and maybe the answer is just Castaneda is incredibly incompetent, which is certainly the picture he paints in his books. I don't know. All right. Uh, are, are there any other accusations? Did he like um, hit somebody with a chainsaw? 
just the typical type of culty stuff, just like, you know, signaling people out for abuse and then banishing people to hell. Just, you know, being really great to somebody suddenly and then turning on a dime and being nasty and no one knowing where they stood and everyone mm. being stuck around trying to. And I guess that's the thing that gets maybe me, that's, is that it doesn't. Yeah, there it is. Some of that. OK, go on. Yeah, like it's just a lot more of that sort of thing. It it doesn't. The thing is, even at the time that these claims were made, this was not new stuff. This is the sort of stuff you see all the time in these kind of culty experiments. So it's just as likely that someone could have written this as a hit piece because they knew it would have sold as it is that Castaneda was a complete fucking creep, which is all just about as, you know, provable as Don Juan. I guess that's the problem is that almost every version of Carlos Castaneda is just as valid or possible as every other one. It's like yeah, there's certain there's things no we real, know. Yeah. There's certain things we know is that Don Juan's teachings are not what the Yaqui Indians believed, or uh, I'm not even sure what the, the Yaqui people w- believed, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got that. The Yaquis did not have a tradition of using Datura plant. Although the fun fact is that apparently the, the Yuma people who Don Juan's mother was apparently a Yuma do have a tradition of Datura. So there's a, maybe that's a point in the other column, but mostly what we find is that Don Juan's teachings are not that of a particular cultural tradition of an indigenous people in that if they do exist, it is a very syncretic, very niche lineage of sorcerers. And given the fact that it transferred from person to person over a period of there's the master and there's the apprentice in general, it's like that there, maybe there's something to that. Maybe it did get very funky because this is just a, a, a a nearly individual. Like it's, it's like the dark, it's like the dark side. It's the Sith. (laughs) I was going to make that joke. Only two. But uh, so maybe there's something there. So those are things. Those are things we can say for a fact is that what Castaneda presented in his doctoral work is not a portrait of an act of any actual cultural indigenous practice. Yeah. Uh, we can point at discrepancies in certain stories and certain events. But as far as everything else, we don't even know if this motherfucker was married or not. We don't know if that was his kid. We don't know where he was born. We don't know how he died. Yeah, and say we don't anything. know what happened to the people that were a part of his uh, inner circle afterwards yeah, either. Absolutely. We know one of them is still around working for the front organization, giving out certifications in Castaneda. And we know one of them is a skeleton. And we know one of them is a skeleton. And everything else is just up in the air. It's worth noting because I already touched on it a second ago, is that you notice that the Western tradition is full of mix and match, choose your own adventure, uh, melting pot type of traditions, whether it's the Golden Dawn and stuff like that. And these are people that will make claims that say, oh yeah, we go back to Chem, you know? We go back to Atlantis. <laughs> We go back mm-hmm. to some hole in the ground of the Babylonians. We go Hyperborea. back to a ba- yeah. We go back to Hyboria. 
um, you know, we go, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, no, really, you don't. You go back maybe 20 years. Yeah, you go back waving. to the late 19th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or at the very least, there's uh, we, we understand that the magic tradition in the West has evolved and shifted over time and that what Levy believed is not the same as what Mathers believed, for example, you know, that sort of thing. And then Mather, what Mathers believed definitely isn't what Spare believed. Like, you know, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So why is that a, why do we give a pass like that as purely a, a European phenomena? Like that the indigenous people who, keep in mind, were colonized at this point too. Colonization had been underway for, you know, for years, basically. Uh, uh, you know why? So why do we make the assumption that there couldn't have been a a fringe or a, an outsider sorcerer tradition in some small, like you know, fraction of a fraction of an indigenous population bopping around between uh, Central America and Southern North America? Why is the idea that Don Juan exists as part of a lineage that doesn't have a historical record? Why is that unbelievable? Because it happens all over. (laughs) I think that's worth noting. Also worth noting that in the later books, which I have not read, we do get names attached to the people that supposedly taught Don Juan. There's a man named Julian Osorio or Osorio, and then it's Elias Aola. Or something like that. Yola. I'm 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 terrible pronouncing these names. But the point being that uh Elias taught Julian and then Julian taught Don Juan. But the important part is that uh Elias was still alive and had met Don Juan. So Don Juan considers the the metaphor is used. It's like having a very it's like having a very uh powerful father and then an even more powerful grandfather where if the grandfather thinks that this is the right idea, that's what you're going to learn. So he describes his, his teachings as, or his learning as being more reflective of what Elias wanted him to learn than what Julian wanted him to learn. Right. And that's just the story that gets told. And the article that I'm pulling a lot of these more fringe notions of the possible origins of Don Juan come from something called the Wanderling, right? And I, I highly recommend you reading a lot of these. There's a, there's a really good one called Don Juan Fact or Fiction. Like it's, it, was, it was helpful for this just because it presented some interesting ideas. This person supposedly is related to someone who knew Castaneda personally, who actually instructed him in how to use Datura. And they make the claim that Don Juan is a composite of other notable people oh. or at the very, at, at the, yeah, that is like, well, yeah. Cause he learned how about Datura from my uncle. And then he probably learned about something from this person. And then, and then he just makes Don or at the very least that Don Juan might be the, like his primary teacher, but he was more than willing to add other lessons that he had gotten from other people and say, Oh, and then Don Juan told me about this, even if they didn't. Wanderling's theory is that whoever Julian and Elias, whether they're not or not, they're real people. They exist as stand-ins. And it's worth pointing out that Julian is a Mexican-born son of European immigrants, and then Elias's nationality and ethnicity isn't stated. But there's a strong possibility that they are not indigenous people at all. 
like neither one of them are indigenous in that. So that would mean that Don Juan's supposed tradition is not an indigenous one at all. And then if Julian is a descent of Europeans and Elias is, you know, Elias doesn't sound like a indigenous name, but I, you know, who knows? Um, there's the idea that maybe this is not indigenous in any sense and possibly like it's, it's transplanted beliefs, which is totally crazy when you think about it. Hell, it's entirely possible that maybe these were some proto castanetas themselves who showed up and just saw all these weird things and were like, I'm gonna make some magic. So I'm gonna make my own Mexican golden Dawn out of this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And how many layers it's like, maybe Don Juan was making shit up if he was real. And you know, it's, a, it's like that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Their theory is that somewhere in the apprenticeship, Don Juan leaves and returns to his roots and, comes in contact with someone that is described in the first book as a diablero because that's a specific word used by Sonora um Sonora Indians as Sonora a indigenous uh, son, yeah indigenous sorry yeah yeah sorry i'm i'm only saying that because like that's what they're referred to in the books but it's oh, not right, that that's a, not that that's an excuse but as i'm recalling information that's what it goes to but the sonorans Describe that's a word specific to Sonorans to describe a a black magician or a um, a, a a brujo type thing. You know, someone of of magical powers and generally malicious intent. And their idea is that oh no, Don Juan had to have met somebody that was more of an actual indigenous. And my only thought reading this is that maybe Don Juan or or if you make the idea that Don Juan existed, right? And then you listen to him talking about erasing personal history. What motivation does he have to tell Carlos Castaneda the truth about anything? He used the word Diablero. Who fuck cares? It's a word that he was familiar with. Like I said, the idea that like Julian Osorio is a, uh, is a, is a fiction. He could be a fiction of Don Juan himself. Don Juan could have just kept making up stories because it's not relevant about the facts of who taught him. What's relevant is, Carlos, are you picking up the teachings? The reason we can't find Don Juan is because Don Juan was lying to Castaneda the moment he met him. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Hey, I'm Don Juan. Yeah, that's my name. Definitely. Yeah, that's, oh, that's it's absolutely certainly not name. Alfonso Rivera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's totally my name. You know, I I know I just told you that, like, as long as you can keep people guessing and have no one able to tie down your actual history that has a great power to you, but you can trust me. My name is actually Juan Matos. <laughs> 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 oh, who cares? Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry. Yeah, I definitely live at this house and nowhere else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I know all about plants. <laughs> I didn't just learn this five minutes ago from your friend. Mm, all I know is peyote makes my lips hurt. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I mean, that's, that's the other thing is that if, if Don, if, if Don Juan exists or did exist, it just, even by the way that he describes his teachings to Castaneda, there's no reason to believe that he's telling the truth. Or that he was interested or desired to be found by anybody. He, in fact, would he really, you could make the argument that Don Juan didn't want to be found by, by anyone. So what have we learned? 
what have we learned? Some good techniques for altering perception, I guess? Yeah, I'll go with that. Do we want to actually discuss any of the techniques as laid out in the books? Yeah, no, let's do that then. The techniques as laid out are, like I mentioned earlier, where it's the notion of the world as we experience it is a description that we are indoctrinated into. And by doing certain perceptual tricks, you are able to stop the world. You are able to break that uh, internalized interpretation. And the methods that don't involve psychotropics are the ones that I think are, if not the most interesting, the ones that are most readily available. So they're worth talking about. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Anyone can just take some fucking peyote and go experience that stuff. So let's talk about the ones that are actually techniques, maybe. Yeah. Well, there's the notion of the right way of walking, which involves the curling of your, of your fingers, the particular movement of your arms and a, a, a focus in a, in a way that allows a, uh, a non-specific glance or a, a generalized glance at whatever's in front of you without looking at anything in particular and moving. And that is another thing it's stressed constantly is this idea of almost slightly crossing the eyes, taking quick glances at things and not focusing in on anything particular and allowing yourself to take in perceptions of particular phenomena, changes in color and certain things that they're, they're not easily described, but you know them when you see them. And those are the things that allow one to begin seeing. And seeing, as, the, as best I can figure, seems to involve allowing those warped perceptions to take place in the same way that like if you were to stare at yourself in a mirror, your perception will start warping. But being able to take those and extend them, uh, drag them out and and breathe life into them almost. And once, once they take over, allowing them to carry you off in a way. And that is when you make contact with this non-ordinary reality. And that's why, you know, that's why uh, psychotropics or, or psychedelics or whatever word you want to call them, that's why drugs, yo, can do so much <laughs> because when you're on a, a high amount of hallucinogenic, prop, you know, uh, hallucinogenic whatevers, it's very easy to catch a glint of something and have it just carry you off. And then you're like, you know, it's, it's 20 minutes later and you're like, oh shit. I've been you know, staring at the wall this whole time. Yeah, exactly. But you weren't. Because if you were just no. staring at the wall, the wall would have been there. The wall wasn't there, you know. The wall melted and your hand went through it and you pulled out your, you know, you pulled out a a, a skull and then the skull said something, you know, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it reminds I, me a lot of uh, Zogchen, if you guys are familiar with that at all. You're talking about the the post-sadhana sort of exercises, the, 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 not, the not letting your eyes dart like a rabbit type thing, or are you... Yes, I believe we're talking about the same thing. Those aren't the terms I would use for it, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Zogchen's a meditation practice, particularly big in the Nyingma uh, school of Tibetan Buddhism. It apparently also has, or potentially has, its origin in the Bon tradition, which we don't have time to go into the Bon tradition. That's a whole other can of worms. Robert Thurman said they're, they're people that are Buddhist, but they're so Buddhist that they don't like the Buddha. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. 
its main goal is Rigpa seeing reality as it truly is. I remember someone speaking about it and discussing doing the practice and how the one of the important things afterwards is once you've finished the session of it, as it were, he, he suggested you go out walking and carry it with you. Yeah, we are. We are talking about the same thing. Yep. And he talked about the, the, the particular movement and how you should walk in a certain way. I think it's metaphysically a very different idea, but the idea of allowing your perceptions take you into something other than the conventional reality around you or what the, the Buddhist would call, well, yeah, what the Buddhist would call conventional reality. Right, right. With Don Juan, the, the part of it is the idea of that Gurdjieff idea of, of breaking the robotic routines of like by walking in a certain way that forces your perceptions to go in directions that you normally wouldn't, you can reach that point where you can take in a different sort of uh, phenomenon or a, a different sort of experience of reality. And I think in the same way, it's that that's what is being described with the Zogchen stuff where it's like, all right, do this exercise that really gets you going. You know, it really puts you in this imaginative astral, whatever the hell you want to call it sort of state. And you do all this stuff and it's like, oh, wow, this is a wild experience. And then it's like, all right, now you have to carry it with you out in the world. Be, and it's almost working on the back end where it's like, all right, give yourself the experience of non-ordinary reality and then try to transpose it onto the world while you're walking about. Right, right. Uh, what other techniques we got? A lot of them really do fall under that sort of breaking of perception because there's the power walk. There is, uh, there's also the, the, the dance where it's like you take on a certain posture and use that as a, and, and have like a gesture that is supposed to ward away for un, undesirable presences. There is a emphasis at multiple points about beneficial spots and enemy spots where it's by attaining these sort of extra sensory perceptions, you can find places of significance that for whatever reason are beneficial to you as a person or antagonistic where it's like you'll sit there and you're going to get irritated and pissed off and or depressed or moody and then just somebody will drag you off of it and it's like no that's a bad spot for you you need to find a good spot where you're going to feel peaceful and relaxed you know and i i found those very interesting there is the mention of the lines of the world that when you can perceive the lines of the world, you're able to cast them. And it talks about how the, the lines that this is, this goes to the auric egg with bristles sort of thing where it's like the lines that travel from the navel are, are very powerful or the lines that travel from the eyes are very powerful. But the lines of the hand, for example, are no, like it's described as like figuring out how to cast the line of your hand. It's like, it's a good perceptual technique, but it's not useful because the hand, the line of the hand isn't powerful enough to do anything, that sort of thing. There's also the description of power and what it means by power is literally anything that carries you out of that non-ordinary reality, right? But power is power obeys you, but it also demands to be used. And I always found that to be an interesting concept. That not is quite, fascinating. Not quite technique, but it's, it is a very interesting idea and the idea that it is contradictory and that it demands you to master it, but it obeys you. It 
it listens, it, it does what you want it to do, but then it carries you off with it and that sort of thing. That's a, that's probably a good one as far as the overall magical experience is that quite often I think people do magic for things that aren't directly defined goals, but it's the idea of like, I felt the spirit demand this of me. The gods demanded this of me. I think it's an interesting concept because a lot of us will, especially in chaos magic, we really like fumbling around with certain paradigms for a while, but we're not so concerned about actually using them in any sort of meaningful way. It's just the one that we're with at the moment. Yeah. Goes back to the usual rants of, hey, you know what you should do is catalog your results and see if they're actually working. Because if you find a paradigm that works better than any other you've ever tried, that I mean, not don't necessarily just stop doing anything else, but you know, you might want to stick with that one. Just a thought. You have experiences with doing these practices, right? Yeah, I do have. I have plenty of experiences that I find very useful. I think two episodes ago, I described the experience of like an energetic superorganism by doing the, those perceptual techniques. And I was literally just at work walking around and I was like, all right, you know, just try to let your eyes cross in a natural way. Don't focus on anything. Just, I find it personally very useful to put as much perception as in as many directions as possible. The more awareness you can affix to every inch around you, the better. It literally turned into a world of moving lines and everything like that. I think I described it as seeing every, the building, the building I was in at the time felt like an organ where things were moving like energetic blood cells or however you describe it. Um, that one was very useful. I won't go too much into the psychedelic, psychotropic things, but there is a quality to dreams and to trances and to tripping that while they are not like each other, there is a, there is a fluidity of movement, particularly in movements that don't make sense. And I don't know, that's very hard to describe, but a way in which things can move in all three of those states that are not readily available in ordinary life. And I, I constantly feel like that is the, the ultimate, I don't, I don't want to say ultimate, like it's the best thing, but like if you could quantify and understand that sort of movement, magic would be second nature to you. It's the way in which you can slip, you can stand at the top of a cliff and then somehow already be at the bottom of it. It's how you're in Ohio and when you hear a voice say, hey, and you turn around and all of a sudden you're in Vegas and it's three months later. Like that sort of almost gaps in the description. The you know, things become a <laughs> cut up almost where it's like there are points on the map that I can be at and I am simply moving. I am simply getting from point to point rather than traveling along a line. But you are traveling along a line. It's simply a line that goes in a direction that I can't point at. Um, I like it. I like it a lot. You know, there is one thing I can say, and this goes with whether or not you're doing the most illegal of illegal substances or having a beer, but you should talk to your things. You should talk to your gut, talk to this, talk to the spirits in things, you know, talk to, talk to your beer and say, Hey, you know, you're the, you, and, and don't, if you feel silly about it, fine, but you know, do it, you know, really have develop a rapport with something. If you're taking something into yourself, you should have a sense of uh, fair play with it. 
you should have a sense of camaraderie with it. You know, this thing, this that's your ally. And I find that incredibly useful and everybody thinks I'm a weirdo because of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's, I think that's another useful. And I think the last thing I'll say is that the, the, the bare bones techniques are there and I would highly recommend reading the books and getting a better handle on them. But also the techniques that we were talking about of erasing personal history, of non-accessibility, of carrying yourself as a warrior. I'm not saying that they are the ultimate answer and like that's definitely the thing you should do. But those are just as useful and valid of techniques to get from this book as like the part where he describes having two lizards that are supposed to help him astral project. Uh, no, I, I'm t- I am telling you that they are more valuable. Listeners, cut off all connection with your family. Change your name. Change your name. Come Go to out the CMN Coganusa compound. compound. Oh, shit. We will make you get a job at Burger get King. A job at Burger King. Go get a hotel room and unplug the phone and wait for further instructions. <laughs> So are you sure I can't convince you to read that article that totally found Don Juan and he was absolutely a real person? I, okay, I can briefly read it. I'm not going to go through all the notes on it, but I'm going to briefly give you the information. And if you guys are really, really taken in by this, then have fun with it. But I personally am going to go with Mr. Castaneda here and say that using statistics and measuring Don Juan's life is destructive and evil and all that. Ahem. Well, I don't think that was very convincing. I I don't know, man. I mean, he's he's got the recordings and everything, you know? You can go find him on the site. Well, can, there's we'll, sources we'll everything. The, we'll put the links up in the description. Yeah, you can you can enjoy those and decide for yourself, listener. We're not here to tell you what to think. Not about Un- this, at least. Unless you're getting ready to cut off all connections with your family, <laughs> quit your job, and go right to the CMN Google News a compound with $45 <laughs> in an envelope, unmarked. <laughs> we will have your Burger King uniform waiting. <laughs> uh <laughs> You better make them nuggets. <laughs> All right. So do you do have you any have closing any, thoughts? I was about to ask you the same thing. I think what I want to leave people with is the note of the power of the erasure and obscuration of your own history. Because if Castaneda had been open about everything, if Castaneda had defended every remark that had ever been thrown at him, If Castaneda kept doing interviews up until the very last day claiming that all of this was true, or if Castaneda had came out and said that all of this was fiction, we wouldn't be talking about any of this. The mystery feeds into this much better than an answer ever could. Right. So the only thing of value you're really going to get out of reading any of these books is reading them and seeing what they have to say. And maybe the techniques will bring you some sort of answer. But it damn sure won't tell you who Don Juan is. It damn sure won't tell you anything about Carlos Castaneda. No, absolutely So just not. enjoy the mystery, and maybe you can get something interesting out of it. Well, I want to leave our listeners with a, a quote from a completely different source. 
This is actually an interview with um, Henri Corbin, if you know who that is, a very interesting thinker on philosophy and particularly the Islamic tradition of mysticism. So like Sufis and stuff. Yes. Mm, that's neat. What does he, what does he have to say and how is it relevant? It is thus for you to understand, my dear Felipe Nemo, why I couldn't be and why I wouldn't wish to be a historian in the common sense of a word. An intellectual authority who establishes the course of events of the past without feeling himself or herself responsible for the latter, and not even responsible for the meaning which he or she attributes to it. It is indeed he or she who confers upon this past one meaning or another and who sets it into motion— the cogwheels of historical causality in conformity with the meaning upon which he or she has already decided. For the historian, the events have come and gone. They have passed by without the historian having been there. It is convenient for that historian should not have been there where and when the events took place. It is in fact necessary that he or she not be there, nor ever engage in an act of presence which regards to this past. For this is, would compromise the historian's ability to speak with historical objectivity. It is even necessary for me to say that the direction my research has taken has as its starting point the incomparable analysis we owe to Heidegger showing the ontological roots of the historical sciences, showing effectively that there is a more original, more primitive historicism than that which we call the universal history, the history of external events. To signify this idea, I have forged the term historiality, which I believe is, is a term worth holding on to. The same relation exists between the term historiality and historicism as between existential as existing and existential conceived as a simple attribute. It was a decisive moment. This very historiality appeared to me as a motivation for the legitimization of the refusal to allow oneself to be inserted into the historicism of history, into the weave of historical causality, and as effectively calling us to tear ourselves from the historicism of history. For if there is a meaning of history, it is not by any means in the historicism of historical events. It is in the historiality in these secret, esoteric, existing roots of history and the historical. I think if you can wrap your head around that quote, it really does give you a, a good secret. <laughs> I think it's very effective. And that's, that's what it is, is that ultimately, it really does not matter. Was Castaneda lying? Is Don Juan real? Who cares? If we're going to talk about the damage to anthropology as a field of study, if we're going to talk about the misappropriation of indigenous beliefs and customs, sure. But if you want to talk about magic, none of that matters. What matters is what are you going to do with it? Are you, is there something useful you can get out? Are you going to do the work? Is there even something to be said about the notion of the historical, of the mythic, of the thing that is greater than the nuts and bolts of a dry recitation of provable events. And in all of that, there's, like we said, there's the mystery, the very enticing mystery. Yep. And with that, this has been Chaos Magic News. Or has it? <laughs> 
if you would like to erase your own personal history, <laughs> you could start by going to Chaos Magic News, <laughs> where we'll have articles, interviews, and links to the podcast and everything you could possibly hope for. You could also find the podcast on Spotify, Audible, Podvine, and wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, we're at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chaos Magic News. We also have a Discord if you want to come talk to us about all the horrible things we said about Carlos Castaneda or all the horrible things we didn't say about Carlos Castaneda or something completely unrelated to Carlos Castaneda. <laughs> it's uh, the doors open. Come on in and uh, bring a tortilla. <laughs> now, I have a question for you. What? Would you like the last word? Um, shit. Flip, I've never been flipped in this position it on you. before. Ah, you flipped it. Yeah, it's because uh, you, you, this is what I, this is what you're doing for having expectations of me. Nah, I flipped <laughs> it on you. It's because a warrior has patience. All right, folks, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. You there? Yeah. All right.